Welcome to episode 57 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I am your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this episode, we have the final two interviews I did at the 2021 National Cyber Summit with John Mad Dog Hall and Jeremy Torville. But before we get to those uh, interviews, I want to thank everyone, as always, for downloading and listening to the Cyber Guy podcast. As always, if you ever have any thoughts or comments or feedback on the podcast, things you'd like to hear, uh, topics you'd like discussed, I can try to find uh, experts in those fields to hopefully have those conversations. Email me, Darren, at thecyberguy.com. Um, I respond to all emails sent to me, uh, and so feel free to do that. also want to make you aware of a new YouTube, new, huh, new YouTube channel, say that three times fast, that I've created to start doing video versions of my podcast. There will not be one for this episode as the two interviews I did uh, were audio only before I started doing the YouTube channel, so I'm not doing a YouTube channel version for this one, but you'll see um, one or two up there plus video versions of my other podcast, the Get Cyber Smart podcast, which is designed for folks who just kind of want to learn a little bit about cyber. They're, they're very short episodes. They go into uh, topics. It's kind of like a cyber 101 course. So feel free to pass that information along to those family members you may have that may um, benefit from that information. There's also a video up there on protecting seniors. It's part of a a larger educational beta program I've created, um, and you can check that out there if, 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 if you are so inclined. So because these interviews uh, make this podcast run a little longer than usual, I'm only going to only talk about one news item, and it's something that popped up today, which is an interesting article in the sense that it has to do with the government and cybersecurity regulations. So I come down in an interesting position on this, but let me just read the headlines from the Washington Post. Um, and it's by Joseph Marks. It was from this morning uh, on December 8th. And it says, Congress can't even pass the easy cyber stuff. Now, the first thing that should come from that headline is, duh, no kidding. Who, who, who would we think that they could? But anyway, so from the article, expansive new cyber reporting requirements now appear dead in Congress. Congress has cut requirements for companies to share cyber threat information with the government from its must-pass defense bill, which passed the House last night and is expected to pass the Senate shortly. The failure of such a popular and bipartisan effort, which would have marked the largest expansion of government involvement in private sector cybersecurity in years, raises questions about whether Congress is up to the task of re responding to a wave of ransomware and other attacks that have battered industry in recent years. It would have required companies in critical industry sectors, such as energy and transportation, to alert the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a, a uh, branch of the Department of Homeland Security, whenever they were hacked or hit with other significant cyber events or incidents. It would have di required disclosures from a far broader group of companies if they paid ransoms to hackers. So without reading more of this article, you can certainly find it at um, Washington Post if you go look to it. But the issue I think really is how deeply involved, if you are a private sector company, do you want the government in your business? The government has largely shown that they do a few things well, but they do a lot of things wrong. Getting into cybersecurity is likely one of those things they would have done wrong in one way, one way, shape, or another. What would be a better approach to this would be providing incentives to the private sector to either fix, improve their cybersecurity um, capabilities, to 
create partnerships to share threat information. I agree with the part of this article that talked about the thing in this bill that would have required reporting of threat information. And what I mean by that is, let's take solar winds, let's take Colonial Pipeline. I mean, pick a pick an intrusion from the last year. It would be great to know how the bad guys got into the system. And in some cases, we do know um, how that happened, which is great. But we don't hear enough of it. There's not enough threat sharing to say, here is the methodology of intrusion. Because really, at the end of the day, what all of these cyber incidents we're talking about are, are unauthorized access into computer systems. Ransomware, they get in, they download, they, they deploy mal- malware that causes the network to lock in. Insider threats get into the network and steal information. There's a, I mean, there's obviously a large or a large variety of different things that are bad, which, which we call intrusions or computer network exploitations. So knowing the methodology of how that's happening and maybe redacting the companies that is occurring to is likely the best approach we need to take, but that doesn't exist. Now, having the government require companies to do that is probably not the approach to go because all the government's going to do is get in the way. Trust me, the, the, the people who wrote whatever this form of this bill were, were not cybersecurity experts. Now, maybe they talked to some cybersecurity experts, which is great to help with that. But in general, those voting on this don't know Jack, uh, Jack Beep about cybersecurity. So they should not be telling those who are in the profession, you know, passing down regulations that just make it harder to to do those things. So I don't agree with that perspective of it. I do think that that organizations need to do better sharing of threat information. InfraGuard with the FBI was created to try to do that. It does it to a certain extent by sanitizing report information, but it's kind of moved off of that that original mission that started in in the early, in the mid 90s in Cleveland. Uh, to what it is today, which is an information sharing organization. It's a great organization. There's probably one near where you live. And if you are in private industry or, pu- or the public sector industry, you can join in for guard to get information on that, on, you know, updated threat in- intelligence. So I-, I recommend you do that. But I don't come down on the line that says, ooh, the government can help with this. Let's do that. And I say that working 20 years in the government for the FBI. I know what our capabilities are and are not. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, the people who deal in cybersecurity need to be the ones who come up with the solutions. They shouldn't be forced on them by the government. But, but where how the government, again, can help get to that point is through incentives to do that, whatever that looks like. Tax breaks. I mean, pick an incentive structure that kind of gets the government out of the way, but incentivizes companies to share their cybersecurity information. That's where I kind of come down on that. So that's the news article for this week. Now going to get into um, my interviews is going to be John Mad Dog Hall, who is one of the, he was around when Linux was created. He knows um, the, the creators of Linux. He is a Linux advocate. As you will hear in this interview, we have an interesting conversation about Linux and stuff. He's certainly has opinions that, that make this a little different than most of the other interviews I did at the National Cybersecurity Summit. And after that, we're going to talk to Jeremy Torville, who I work with uh, here in Huntsville, about uh, the cyber range here. And, and, and ideally, there are things like this, what he's going to talk about in other areas of the country. 
So uh, I hope you enjoyed these two interviews. These are the last two interviews I have from the National Cyber Summit, so we will not do these going forward. Uh, hopefully next week I'll have a CEO of a local cyber cybersecurity company on the podcast. Um, I've got a few uh, fellow FBI agents who recently retired to talk about what they've done, so we'll have them coming up in the future. As always, feel free to email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com or Darren at cybersmart.com. I have both of those emails, so feel free to do that. But here are the interviews. All right, so it's my honor to welcome John Mad Dog Hall to the Cyber Guy podcast at the National Cyber Summit 2021. Mr. Hall, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's my pleasure. All right, you, you have no idea who I am. Someone told you to come over here and talk, so I appreciate you taking the taking a flyer on what we're doing here. But Mr. Hall is the board chair for the Linux Professional Institute, so let's talk a little bit about what that is. What is the Linux Professional Institute, and did you create it, or how, where, where, how did it get to where it is? Well, it is a nonprofit, 501c3, but it's in, headquartered in Canada, so that's their version of nonprofit up there. And what we do is certification of Linux and open source professionals. Uh, we only do certification. We don't do any training. We do training through partners that partner with us, and then once they've trained the people, then those people can go and get certified. However, we are also an open certification. So all of the objectives for each one of our certifications is listed online. People can go there, see what the objective is, and then get educated any way they want to, whether it's self-study, by reading books, by practicing, your mentorship, you know, apprenticeship, or whatever they want to do. And once they feel they're ready, they can come and take the test and then pass the test and get their certification. So if you take a look at what universities really do, universities create a curriculum and then they teach subjects according to that curriculum and then they test you on those subjects and how much knowledge you have and at the end of that they give you a diploma which is in effect your certification. So we do the same thing. You know, we just do the certification part. Gotcha. Now, this all started back in 1999. You know, obviously, Linus Torvald started his kernel in 1991. By 1994, it was up to the point where it's version 1.0, and that was, uh, you know, a good uh, thing. But at that time, it was still kind of a hobbyist thing, a technical thing. It was not, you know, something that... Um, you could actually think of as commercial or something, you know. But we felt that there was some commercial benefit to it. But if you're going to move into commerce, you need to be able to have things like certification, professional support, things like that. So we started the Linux Professional Institute to, to start that. And, if, and so Linux is based on the Unix backbone. Do I have that correct? And I it, might be wrong on that, but that's... It's, it's based on, on Unix. You might say it's Unix-like, okay? And um, But Linus Torvalds wrote it from scratch, and that's why mm. you didn't have to pay any money to AT&T that yeah. at that time owned the copyright to the Unix software. Um, eventually, uh, other places like BSD uh, rewrote all of that software, you know, in a, in a clean room. And so they got out from having to pay the AT&T royalties also. But you know, Linux was actually first in that. The, the BSD folks were still going through a lawsuit with AT&T uh, to, to clear that up. And it was late in 1994 that they finally got around to that lawsuit. 
So was the basic be basis behind Linux being created to create have an open source operating system that anyone could use and modify and fix to their point? Or what was why did he create it? What was the what was his thought process for for coming up with that? Well, his first thought process was in 1991. He just received a brand new 386 processor. <laughs> And he decided that he wanted to have a good operating system for it. He didn't want the Windows? Well, <laughs> now you have to remember that Windows ran on 286s and 186s and things like that. And was, you know, also 386s at the time. But they still had to support those other processors. And those other processors were not capable of demand page mm. virtual memory. So... They could only have a port. They could only have a program of a certain size in memory at one time. With virtual memory, you could have a program of almost unlimited size in virtual memory, with just little pieces of it in your physical RAM at any one time. So, you know, Linus knew this, and he said, "I want to have a system that has demand page virtual memory." And he started it, but then he realized it was going to be a big project, so he needed some more help. And he sent out a message about September of 1991 that said, um, you know, it's, you know, would you help me on this? It's not going to be a big project like Minix. It's just going to be a tiny little fun thing. And uh, the tiny little fun thing has kind of taken over the computing world. Yes, absolutely. How many, how many flavors of Linux are there now? Roughly. I mean, I'm sure you can't have an exact number, but I mean, I, I know I, I have... Last a, time I looked, about 350. I know, like Ubuntu and Kali Linux and all that kind of stuff. And, and how do they... How do they what's their twist on it? How did they... Mod or they just add something that they can say, this is now ours because we made this little kernel change? Or what is, where does the alteration occur that allows them to rebrand it a different type? Well, re you don't actually have to do anything to rebrand it. You okay. can actually rebrand it without making any changes <laughs> at all. But some people go in and they add something that has to do with their country or their culture. You know, maybe it's a translation into their language. Mm. Um, sometimes, in one case, there was a, a, a rather famous distribution called Gnopix. Yep. And, and Nopix because runs live. You don't have to install it on your machine at all. So, you know, and that's still going on. And a lot of the other distributions have also created live distributions. They saw what Nopix had done, and they made one of their own, and they added it to their distribution. So, you know, there's a lot of distributions out there that there isn't much difference between them. And then we have things called spins, and a spin is a distribution that you maybe put a different face to it, or maybe you integrate it in a different way. And that's a lot less, it's a lot less pain to create that than it is a real distribution mm -hmm. where you say, I'm going to support that on certain hardware and things like that. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about your career. What, um, what got you into this whole cyber business? Um, where, where you going back to your, your earliest careers when you were in college, you say, hey, I, I think computers are a thing that's going to happen. I should probably get into that. Or did you start somewhere else and move into the cyber world down the line? And of course, I'm going to have to ask how you got the Mad Dog name, as is required, I'm sure. I started out as an electrical engineer at Drexel University. And I had had three years of electronics in high school. I could actually design radio receivers, transmitters, the things, all AM, because FM required a lot more parts. Sure. And um, I enjoyed doing that. You know, I enjoyed doing that work. So I decided, okay, I'll be an electrical engineer. Went to Drexel. 
And in the Drexel was a co-op school. So after the first year, I had to go out to co-op and actually work out in industry. And I was working for a company called Western Electric. It was the manufacturing arm of the Bell system. And I started off there, you know, as an electrical engineering student. And they came along and they said, we have this correspondence course where we can offer it to you for free. You read a book and it's, you know, whatever you want. So I'm looking down the list and here's one that says, program the IBM 1130 in Fortran. <laughs> now this is Fortran, all capital letters like Fortran should be spelled as not Fortran 4, Fortran 77, Fortran 90, Fortran, high performance Fortran. This is just Fortran. And you direct with it with punch cards. Mm -hmm. So I would write my programs, punch the cards and stuff like that, get them to work on the little IBM 1130 that was there. And after a while, I got pretty good at it. But there was one other thing that convinced me not to go the electrical engineering route, and that was the fact that I was almost electrocuted with 13,600 volts and 800 amps while I was trying to take a measurement one day. And I said, this is too much like danger, right? So, <laughs> yep. I said, you know, how, how hurt could I get, you know, writing programs and punching cards, maybe a paper cut or something. So, And I got to do it in an air-conditioned room with low humidity. And if you've ever been in, well, you're in Huntsville, Alabama. You must know what the summer is like with, yes. the, with the humidity and stuff. That's what it was like. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And when I went back to Drexel, I did more and more computing and less and less electrical engineering until finally I switched my major to something called commerce and engineering, which is half engineering and half business. And that's what launched my career. Great. So, and so I'm reading on your on your Wikipedia page. I'm not sure how much is real and how much is not because you know you can't always trust Wikipedia. But what? obviously, you're a, <laughs> you're a, you were a professor at Drexel. If I got that right? No, no. Harvard State. Technical Harvard State. College. Yes, Harvard State. So, so and that brings me to this question, and that's, that's why I asked it. So, one of the things we're seeing, obviously, and I'm sure you've seen it in this whole cyber world, is finding qualified people for positions to do the positions we need. Cybersecurity, be it vulnerability assessment, penetration testing, pick your, pick your poison. Trying to find qualified personnel for that is problematic. So as an educator, what do you see? Do you see more value in the college degree? Because you mentioned college degree, you do all your stuff, and you get your certification as your diploma, or certifications where you do intense study for a little bit on a, on a thing, get a certification, move on, or a, a combination of that. Where do you see the, the value in all of that? Well, I would have to say that I would have to say the certification over time, because the computer industry is changing so fast. I right. mean, I got, I got my master's degree in computer science in 1977, <laughs> and let me tell you, if I was trying to use that knowledge today, sure, I think I'd be in trouble. Okay. Yep. So you go along, you read magazines and stuff like that to keep your knowledge up, and if you're in the industry, of course, people say they kind of assume that you know something or maybe they look at your resume what have you done things like that but even that if, if something is as specialized as security i think getting certifications would help and particularly every once in a while to make sure you're there now so like i said at lpi we list our, our objectives for the certification so let's say you it's been a couple years since you've really had a course or studied or anything you go to our website you take a look at the objectives you say yeah i know that i know that i know that what whoa whoa what's that one i've never seen that before 
maybe you should read up on that, right? Because right. that's something that somebody's going to be looking for. And if you go in for the interview and you don't know anything about it, they're going to think this guy doesn't know anything. So, and looking at those objectives is free. You don't have to. You don't have to pay anything to do that. So you can look at all those objectives and you say, yeah, that's good enough with my resume and knowing all this stuff. I can go in and, and go for the job interview. On the other hand, you might say, hey, I'm going to pay the $150 and actually get that certificate after my name. And let me tell you why that's important. Because maybe you're going to work for a firm and that firm is going to say, okay, we do cybersecurity and stuff like that. And we have 70% of our people certified through this certification program. And we have 25 that have received even a higher certification. And because you know, they're going to be selling not you to the, the customer, they're going to be selling their employees to the customer. And so it's more valuable to them to have you have the certification than you know, not have one. So I'm looking on your website now, lpi.org is the website we're talking about. And so, yeah, there's a lot, new summary of certifications. That's awesome. So if you, so if you want to, so what's the general cost first for these certifications? Well, that actually, first of all, we're a nonprofit okay. based in Canada. There's some reasons for that I won't go into. <laughs> but... Um, we have 180,000 certified people around the world in over 180 different countries. There's only about five countries that we don't have anybody that we know of certified in. Um, the cost depends on, is set by the uh, UN cost regions of different countries. So the wealthier countries, there's a higher fee. The, lo the countries that don't have as much GDP, you know, it's a lower fee. and We try and make it equitable around. But the, the issue there is everybody says, well, how much does it cost to take the test? How much does it cost to get the certification? We can also show you that people who've gotten our certification might make 5 to 10% higher salary than people that don't, you know, overall, everything sure. else being equal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how much are you going to make in a year or two years when you have 5% more salary, okay? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you have to look at it as what is going to give you back. And if you really can't afford to take this test, which... I th you know, in a lot of countries, it may be around $110, $120. Yep. If you really can't afford to take that test, well, then we sometimes have scholarships that are paid for by various organizations. And do you do the, so is the training for that on, is it online at the website? So uh, let's take LPEIC1, Linux Professional 1. So if I was to take this course, is it, how is it, how is it provided to me? Well, first of all, again, it's not a course. Gotcha. It's a certification. Yes, certification. Right, right. So there's reading, reading to the understand the concepts for the test. Do I got? Is that how that works? We have or objectives, no. <laughs> gotcha. and and you then have to go and and find the information to meet those objectives. Ah, I okay. Gotcha. Yep. Now we do have a list of partners, training partners. So if you don't if you don't learn, except that you're maybe a class or something like that, well then. Okay, you go and you sign up for the class. The class could be at a university. The class could be at a, at a community college, you know. But if you can learn by reading a book and, you know, say, and say you know, maybe you have a Raspberry Pi, you're going to practice with that. Well, okay, that's fine. Learn that way and then go and take the test. 
And I think you have to have a 60% or 70% pass rate to pass the test. We don't give grades. We don't see A, B, C, D. Right. You either pass or you fail. But, you know, you take the test and you, and you pass. So, and we also have a membership program so that if you become certified, you can join as a member. And then we have ways for you to get, or if you mentor a student or if you do other things, you can get credits to keeping your certification mm-hmm. going. Because we figure that if you're already in the industry and you're doing all these things, that you're probably keeping up with the news that's coming out about whatever certification. Right. So, okay, I'll get you on this last question. How did you get the name Mad Dog? Well, uh, I was teaching in a small two-year technical college from 1977 to 1980. So I'm going to take your, your listeners way back, and I'm going to remind them that in that time period, you didn't have computers in the home, and you didn't have computers in high schools for the most part. And the first time that a lot of my students saw a computer and touched a real keyboard was in my class. And in a two-year period of time, I took them from knowing nothing about computing to being able to write a simple compiler or a simple operating system or a simple database. And, you know, and a lot of those kids went on to be the vice presidents of companies these days. So I had a dean of instruction who was British, very proper gentleman. He always came in in a suit and tie in the middle of the Baltimore, uh, the Hartford summer with no air conditioning. And, um, and he believed that you should teach students a certain way. And you know, if, if, you, if, if all of your audience could see me right now, I'm in a T-shirt and shorts. And, you know, and I had a different way of teaching students. And so one day the, the dean comes down to my office and we start this discussion about this one particular class of students who weren't performing the way they should. And the conversation started getting louder and louder and hotter and hotter until the entire school could actually hear our conversation. The dean fired me four times that day, <laughs> but he hired me back five times, and that was a good part. And then after that, the, the students said that the conversation was too hot for bad dogs and Englishmen. And since the dean was British, he was the Englishman, and I was the mad dog. Now, my temper was not as even and mild as it appears to be today. And, and, and believe me, this is a facade. I am actually a seething quadrant of <laughs> anger all the time, okay? But I've learned to control that, and uh, mainly because I was convinced that when you lose your temper, you lose the argument. So my job now is to make other people lose their temper and then make them lose the nah, argument. Very good. Excellent. Okay. But I kept the name to remind me never to lose my temper again. So that's great. I'll leave you with this. Or I'll, I'll get you out of here with this last question. Where do you see the future of Linux coming in the form of, as far as cybersecurity is concerned? Because obviously, you know, you have Windows and Apple as the two main competing OSs for commercial and commercial use, largely. And Windows still the predominant environment in businesses. No, it's not. You disagree? I guess, I, yeah, maybe I'm being more on an end user. We'll start with the easy one. Okay. 
The 500 fastest supercomputers in the world all run Linux. Understood. But okay. what I'm saying, but... but no, I'm going on. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. More don't than 60% please don't, please don't of mad. all the servers, mm-hmm. including, the, including the servers that run Google and, you know, even Microsoft Azure yes. is on Linux, right? So that's a lot of servers. No, I understand that. But, no. but, but go ahead. I'm, I'm interrupting. I apologize. Keep going. All your embedded <laughs> systems... You know, Linux is the most used operating system in new embedded system designs and has been since the year 2000. So if you're talking Internet of Things and edge right. computing and stuff, you're probably going to be talking Linux. Yeah, no, I'm, talking, no, I'm, I'm thinking more of the general end user, like the home user, the even the... Oh, even have you it, ever heard of Chrome OS? Yes, yes, but even, in the, but even in, the, in the corporate world, if you're looking at the end user box sitting on a... On a because most likely, if an intruder is getting into a network, he's coming in through somebody's email. That end user who's getting hit with the email is probably looking on a, on a Windows box. Sure, there's Linux backends that are serving up everything else. But, and I've lost track of what my question is now because it was a stupid question. To start with Linux. What is, what is Linux going to be doing in the commercial space? Okay. Or how, now, how do you see it evolving is actually more of my question. How is it going to, how do you see it evolving into as the as the threats evolve around it. Well, actually, there are some distributions of Linux that specialize in secure environments. So, for example, if you went over to the Red Hat booth, they would tell you about SE Linux, which mm-hmm. was actually designed by the NSA, and it was designed a number of years ago. And Red Hat's been moving in that direction by using SE Linux for making really secure systems, and I'm sure they have a whole bunch of services that they can offer with that. If you're looking at SUSE or one of the other distributions, they may be using something called AppArmor, which allows you to go through and apply authentication to various of the Linux attributes and stuff like that. If I was working with end users, I probably would create a virtual machine for them and run that all that web browsing and stuff in that virtual machine. They could browse to their heart's content. They could bring out all sorts of stuff, nasty stuff, into that virtual machine. Mm-hmm. At the end of my at the end of my period, I just blew that virtual machine away with all the, everything, the nastiness that they brought down with it. And why don't more small and medium sized businesses do that? I don't. Is it is it be, do they not do it because it's too confusing to their small? Like if you got a staff of a hundred people, they're not they're not going to be able to. They're able to do that, but I don't think. Most a lot of the small and medium-sized businesses are looking to do that particular level of security, which I agree is the best way to go. But I don't, I don't think we see a lot of that going on. Well, I mean, if I had a hundred people in my in my business, and of course it depends on what type of business sure. it is. Yep. But if I had a hundred people, I'd make sure one of those is a pretty good systems administrator who would set up an image and an environment for those people and say, "This is what you're going to use." Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you can you can use any word except the word. No, in, in doing that, okay? <laughs> right. Because you work for me. I don't work for you, okay? And, you know, if you're a larger... And the other thing you have to ask yourself is, what have you got to lose? Absolutely. Okay? Yep. And if you really think about what you have to lose, then maybe you're going to make more of an investment in not losing that. Great point. I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to reinstall my Ubuntu and my Kali Linux and my Debian into my VM on my Mac so I can start practicing it more because I keep, I, keep, uh, I keep telling myself I'm going to practice my Linux more and I don't do it enough. So you've convinced me to go back to that. Well, Kali Linux is actually a good 
operating system with the tools to test penetration yep. and stuff like that. But if you actually want to have more of a secure system to use your Kali Linux again, <laughs> yep. you take a look at SE Linux. Uh, that it, it runs with Fedora, which is free. Yep. And so you can set up an SE Linux system or set up an AppArmor system with Debian or SUSE or any of the, R, uh, not RPM ones, but any of the Debian uh, Deb. Uh, package managers and stuff. Yeah, I have a little Raspberry Pi sitting in the corner that has been not been turned on in months. So I need to, and I think I even got Debian on it. I'm pretty sure that's why I installed into it. So I've got it there. It's just a matter of using it. So you might also want to take a look, and I'll say this for your listeners: take a look at something called the Freedom Box, uh, freedombox.org, spelled just like it sounds. This is started by a guy named Eben Moglin, good friend of mine. He's a professor of law and a lawyer and he at Columbia University and he actually uh, wrote the GPL version 3 of, of the GPL license about 10 years ago Eben got this horrible idea that some of these companies like Facebook and Google and people we shall not mention <laughs> um, were looking at people's data and he wanted a nice secure safe place for people to run their data without any binary blobs to have trojan horses and trap doors and stuff like that so they've been working on that for 10 years and last year they came out with their first version of it and it's really easy to set up you can set up a secure server with it and it has a little dashboard, so even even if you're not a systems administrator, you can set up things that and, and use them relatively easily. And it's very nicely done. They sell a little box that has no binary blobs and any of the device drivers and stuff like that, so you can inspect every single part of the system to see what's there. Yep, I see it right here. I order. I can order now. I can order right here if I want to. But but you don't have to, right? Because you can set your own on my on my Raspberry Pi, on your Raspberry mm -hmm. Pi, or on anything to anything that runs Debian ten. All the software is there. Awesome. It's just that you might have some binary blobs down further in the operating system. But if what you want to see is the functionality of this thing and everything, yeah. you can do that on any platform that runs Debian ten. Cool. Well, Mr. Hall, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I apologize for my dumb questions, but I appreciate your tolerance. I, I was a teacher. I was a teacher for, well, I taught full-time for three years and part-time for another four years, but then I started traveling so much I couldn't do that anymore. But I'll tell you, like every teacher tells you, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Okay? Yep. All right. Fair enough, sir. Thank you. All right, so I'm joined now by Jeremy Torville of the Information System Security Association. That's correct. I have to. You, I, I've talked to that group many times. You think I would? I would know their acronym better than I do. But Jeremy, thanks for taking the time to stop in and talk here at the National Cyber Summit. Sure, glad to be here. All right, so let's talk a little bit before we get to why SSA is and what it does and, and who should belong. Let's talk about your career arc. What do you? What got you into the information security world? Was it something you always did? Like you were in college, this is what I want to do, computers are cool? Or did you kind of fall into it somewhere else? Premier, let's talk a little bit about that. I think I fell into it just a little bit later uh, in, in uh, getting started in, into my career. Um, I think I really started off in the IT uh, realm probably in my really early 30s. Um, and I, I spent uh, probably my first 10 years uh, in a very Windows-centric uh, with a little bit of Novell mixed in, um, supporting some commercial companies. And uh, when I moved down to the Huntsville area, uh, about 10 years into my career, then I had found the local group and I felt like it would be a good way to network. 
and uh, get to know other professionals in the industry. And uh, it turned out it ended up being a very good choice for me. Um, I've certainly got to know a lot of people. And, yeah, like you say, I kind of kind of a sort of a backdoor way into uh, falling into cybersecurity. So so you talked about your windows. So we're going to a little from, from a... Uh, just so everybody knows, Jeremy and I work together. So, but so you were always a Linux guy, right? So, so, so how did you move to that? Was that something you always were involved in as well, or did you? Move I, to I had a little bit of it, uh, but the uh, employers that I had worked for previously didn't really have a whole lot of. Uh, I don't want to say use for it, but they didn't seem to. You know, they seemed to be very Windows centric. Sure. Uh, so when I landed down here, I found some other places uh, that really wanted that skill set, and so that's uh, kind of when I really pivoted my career, and I've been uh, a lot more heavily uh, Linux focused for now the last ten years. So let me stay on that topic just for a second because yesterday I talked to Mad uh, Mad Dog Hall, Joe Mad Dog Hall. Did you talk to him at all? I have not yet. He's a he's a he's the director of the Linux uh, Linux group. He's a big Linux guy. He was around when Linux was created. And was the guy who created Linux, so he was very much Linux centric, which is great. Um, but one of the one of the problems we had in our discussion, not a problem, but one of the misconceptions I think we had to each other is I was trying to say, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, how do you, how is Linux going to help the small and medium sized companies who just don't have, like you said, like your your first employers there didn't really weren't interested in Linux was well, because Windows is so much more user friendly and well known. So, so do you find that to be the case where a lot of companies just are kind of not afraid of, but kind of timid towards Linux in, in general. What do you, uh, let, me, let me rephrase the question. In your experience, do most companies prefer the Windows environment simply because it's just been a long round longer and there's, there's more, it's a lot easier to configure together? How does that I, look? I think so. I think the, uh, the simplicity of Windows is probably what drives people to adoption of it. Yeah. Um, the the skill set for Linux, uh, uh, you know, takes just a different breed of person. Um, and for me, doing open source product, it's more than just RHEL. I mean, there's Ubuntu out there. There's, you know, you, you got your two yeah, basic 350 flavors. 350 of them or whatever. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's so many, right? But it all boils down to it's either some sort of Debian-based or it's a, it's a Red Hat-based uh, type, type of operating systems. And they're all pretty similar to each other in that regard. Uh, but, yeah, just finding, finding the people who have the skill sets that want to learn that. And, and it was something I had learned. I uh, was taught in school and kind of kept up with it early on. Mm-hmm. Just didn't have opportunity to use it. And when I landed down here, then, you know, I realized my opportunity that I had. And I think that's the key to it, right? If you don't stay up on the skill set required for Linux, you'll lose it pretty quickly. Because I did, when I first joined the FBI, we had a Sun Solaris course. So they taught us scripting in Sun Solaris. Which was great for two weeks. I learned a lot, and but if I didn't continue to use it, it just all kind of. I have to every time. I have to always go back if I want to say I'm going to start working Linux again, just for my own understanding. I always have to go find the cheat sheet that says the what all the like the you know delete folder and all that kind of stuff. All those codes are to, to do your text line editing. So right. I assume that's the case. If you don't stay up with it, it really doesn't become useful for you. Right. I would say that's true. Um, to, to be successful in the field overall, I think you've got to uh, be the type of personality who wants to continually learn and be driven by that. Well, let me ask you this question. So how is so from an educational perspective, are universities, and you may not know the answer, so that's fine, I'm just curious, but so like, because finding, as you, as you and I both know, trying to find people just to put in the positions of job openings we have is very difficult. Do we find, do you find that Linux is even being taught in college to the level it needs to be? Or is it more of a, if you want to learn Linux from a, and you're in college, you want to learn Linux and become a Linux practitioner, you've kind of got to do it on your own? Or are there, are there academic 
resources that, that will help them with that? I think there are academic resources. Uh, whether the colleges are doing it, I can't really evaluate. Now sure. I'm so far removed. Gotcha. I'm, I'm 20 years into my career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I think the resources are available. And, and if you're driven, driven and want to learn it, you can learn it. Sure. Uh, so let's talk about ISSA. What's it? Uh, it's an, Obviously, it's a... Uh, Workforce or organization, I assume. Uh, it is. It's a professional organization. Professional organization, yeah, yes. Sorry. It's like a Monday. I can't think of my words <laughs> early in the morning. But that's why I took the, drank the caffeine. But, okay, so it's a, it's a professional organization. What's it do? Who's it targeted towards? And who should join? So we, we are always looking for uh, members. Um, well, it's, it's professional um, sort of organization. Uh, we've got people from just all sorts of walks uh, working in the IT field, but to have some sort of affiliation or, or loose interest with security. And uh, we give monthly talks. Um, a lot of times the uh, vendors will come in and provide a lunch for us, which is really nice. Um, and we try to do a lot of community outreach um, with with. Uh, having conferences uh we've got three main conferences a year uh we've got rocket secure in the fall which is happening next month uh october 29th i believe it's the last friday of october um we do uh, b-sides usually in the spring uh usually about february or march time frame and then generally speaking ncs uh falls in the summertime and what is b-sides uh b-sides is just People can come in and give a security talk on just about anything they want. And pretty much anybody gets accepted. There's no sort of review committees. It's, uh, people have equated it to the B side of the record, right? Oh, there, so it's there like was no real restrictions. So it's like on. the cyber version of TED Talks. It is. Sure. And how do you? So how do you sponsor? Because I've, I've seen because it's a it's a national thing, right? Because I've it seen is. it in other places. So how does how does one get involved with that? Is there you just got to go to the B side site and they'll show you where they're having the, these conferences? Right. So if I wanted to speak at B-Sides, let's say I wanted to come talk about cyber education. Yes. I would just sign up and say, hey, I'd like to come talk about cyber education for 10 minutes. Uh, sure. Yes, you can okay. do that. Uh, so our, our uh, local chapter, we call it NAC, uh, North Alabama chapter, NAC ISSA, uh, our, our website is really active. We've got local events listed out there, and uh, that is one that we have listed. And we're, we've always got a call for speakers out. Okay. Actually, I might actually do that now that, <laughs> now that I know. So where do you see – so – You've probably talked to a lot of people here. What, what is the consensus? Uh, I mean, that's a bad question. Where do you see cybersecurity going? There's a lot of buzzwords in cybersecurity. If you were to look around, zero trust, whitelist, whitelist, white, I'm sorry, uh, application whitelisting. Well, I'm going to cut out a lot of this stuff. I was like, <laughs> let me start that over. So there's a lot of buzzwords in the industry, zero trust. Whitelist applicant <laughs> application whitelisting. Jesus, okay, start over. There's a lot of buzzwords in the industry. Zero trust, application whitelisting, um, AI, all these things. Where do you see, or what, or even what is your organization? What do you see as the what's the next step in cybersecurity? Sorry, I put you on the spot on that Good one. Good question. <laughs> Good question. No, I. Um, it's really hard to say. I guess I've got my head so down in the weeds, just sure. uh, doing my day to day job stuff. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what new developments uh, just come along in terms of security. I guess. Okay. Um, I, I do think some of the buzz, buzzwords are. Some of the things, same things being done, uh, just giving it a different name. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Yep. So where do we find ISSA? Where do you, if you want to go get more information about ISSA and the North Alabama chapter, where do you go? So our uh, website address is HTTPS. Uh, nac-issa.org. Okay. And if you're not, so if someone's listening is not in Northern Alabama, but interested in their local ISSA, is there a general, is there, ISSA.org is the general ISSA uh, site? Uh, that one I would have to look up to see what the URL is. Uh, there is a national ISSA organization, and in fact, it's actually international. Okay. Well, let's, let's look right now, because I've got my internet here in front of me. Looks like ISSA.org, the yeah, Information System Security Association International. So yep. ISSA.org is the place to go. Yeah, that's it. Jeremy, thanks so much for stopping by. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks. All right Jeremy, before we go, I forgot to, I, I, it's like I let you go, but I'm going to have you come back. I for, we forgot to ask about the cyber range. So talk about the cyber range that the ISSA has. Uh, so, so our project uh, started uh, in the summer of 2018. We had just an idea, and uh, we started to kind of execute on that. Really, our goal with having the cyber range is that we, as a professional community, try to give back and try to help others along uh, those who are new students, say high school, college age, trying to get into the career field. Um, and so we want to do that uh, with two different things. We, we are uh, doing CTF competitions uh, to kind of help encourage uh, you know, just camaraderie and, and uh, learning from each other, uh, getting together, networking. And then as well, we're also providing educational resources uh, for people. We feel like that's a real important uh, aspect to it. So uh, those are just a couple of things uh, we've, we've been doing there. Uh, and it's been a really a community-driven effort. Uh, it's, it's picked up more and more speed as time has gone, gone along. And uh, we're really getting a, a really positive response. So talk about what a cyber range is for those people who aren't aware of what a cyber range is. Uh, so cyber range is really just sort of a sandbox, safe way to go ahead and uh, learn new skills without fear of wrecking somebody else's computer. Okay. okay. Uh, so you, you can get in there and you can hack away, right? Um, there, there's nothing here that can't be rebuilt. Uh, and so, you know, we just wanted to provide a, a safe resource for that people could could use. So we've, we've gotten a lot of interest from the high schools who really say, hey, yeah, I'd love to use some of your curriculum, right? Okay. Bring, it to, bring it to our students and have them get involved in that. So if you go to the NAC website, is there a way to, on there to find how to use the cyber, how to get access to the cyber range or set up training? Yes, there is. Okay. Uh, there, there, one of the headers uh, under the NAC site is the cyber range. And then uh, from there, we've got uh, kind of an FAQ section, gives a little bit of history history on us, um, you know, what our goals are. and uh, Does every ISSA have one, or is it just a, this is a, a NAC? This is a NAC sure. ISSA. Gotcha, okay. uh, there may be others that have it, um, but uh, we we love having uh, c- being community-driven, community-supported, sure. community mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, getting, getting the high school students in, getting involved with us. Uh, as well, we're always looking for volunteers who say, Hey, I can help you uh, do some system administration type activities, or it could be uh, coding. Uh, it could be helping to document processes, all those sorts of things. So we we really appreciate that support, and that's that's uh, the heart and soul of of how we get this thing done. Great. So nac-issa.org. Mm-hmm. That's right. Go sign up for the cyber range. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Jeremy. So that is going to do it for episode 57 of the Cyber Guy podcast. Thank you again so much for taking the time to listen. Thank you to John Mad Dog Hall and to Jeremy Torville for taking the time to talk to me at the National Cybersecurity Summit. As you go through your week, know that knowledge is protection. If you 
understand the threats targeting you. You can assess your risk online and then proceed wisely. As we move into the holiday season, be aware of the ongoing cyber scams that are flooding everybody's email inboxes because it's the holiday season. Um, Tell your friends about the podcast. Have them take a listen to episode 56, where I talk to Scott Angamam about staying safe during the holiday shopping season. And we will see you next week for episode 58 of the Cyber Guy podcast. Stay safe.